Hello everyone, it's June 16th, 2020, so we have a little more information on what happened to Doug Lavero, and now we have the name of his successor. May she have better luck. Also, we have updates on Insight, DARPA, Northrop Grumman, all of which are having better luck. Let's get going and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 264 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. All right. So we're back. Yeah, sorry I was out last week. Glad you're feeling better. So I was talking to Ben. I was telling Ben earlier that, uh, like, I was not sick with an illness, but um, I was recovering Which from... Which is what I said, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I was, like, recovering from a slight complication due to a procedure. So basically, I was just in a little bit too much pain. Uh, so, but I'm feeling better now. Still not 100%, but at least, you know, I can do a podcast. Like, it's not a big deal. I'm just a little sore. So um, before we started the show, I wanted to give a shout out to a new company that I found. They're called Friday Afternoon Tea. They are a tea house in Seattle. Um, you can find their website at fridaytea.com. Well, so I don't know if you guys heard about the J.K. Rowling debacle this week. I have. Or I guess last week. Yeah. So J.K. Rowling said something very transphobic on Twitter and then got attacked. And then she wrote like, I don't know, maybe like a 50, 100,000 word scree about why she's right to be a transphobe and why her friends that she was defending have it's it's bad don't don't read it it's not worth your brain power but friday afternoon tea has got a bunch of teas named after the harry potter series uh like i think one of them yeah one of them is called badger's blend and it's named after like um hufflepuff mm. um you know and so like they got some of these fun things and so they said uh, all of our harry potter inspired teas uh will be donating all the profits uh, for like a week or whatever to, uh, to a trans resource, uh, organization. Um, and so I was like, well, that's a pretty cool thing to do. I have been looking for some good tea recently. Let me go check them out. And their tea looks really, really good. So I bought a bunch and I just wanted to let anybody know if you like, uh, a good black, highly caffeinated tea. Um, and, uh, David, this, this might be up your alley too. If you're trying to get away from the acidity mm. of coffee, but you still want caffeine. I bought a, a couple of different teas. Um, I really like pu'er, um, which is like a fermented tea. And so I bought two different pu'ers, uh, a loose leaf and a cake. And then I also bought a blend that had pu'er in it. And then, um, I bought a tea called writer's fuel and I was drinking it yesterday and it's really good. It's a really good strong loose leaf tea. So, you know, you don't need to put uh, very much tea in your cup to make a really nice strong cup. Um, it is um, slightly smoky. So if you like like a gunpowder tea, but it's too much, this is like a great either an introduction to gunpowder tea or a good uh, adjunct, I guess. Uh, but it's slightly smoky. It's really nice and bitter. Um, like it's got the good, uh, tannin astringency, um, with a surprising amount of sweetness coming out of the tea. You know, I mean, it's, it's black tea. So if you don't put sugar in it, it's not going to be really sweet, but you know, tea and coffee have their own natural sweetness, uh, that kind of hides in some of the other flavors. And especially as this tea starts to cool down, it gets very pleasantly sweet. I really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, so that's, that's my plug for this week, fridaytea.com. Okay, cool. We have, a, I guess, a little bit more news on uh, what happened to Doug Lavero with respect to his resignation. And I think it's important to point out, because this resource here, the Market Screener, it's important to point out that this is according to 
the source that we have is from a website called Market Screener, and it says that all this information is... This website felt really weird to me. I don't know about you yeah. guys. It says it's according to people familiar with the details. It doesn't specify who those people are, though. So maybe take this with well, a grain of shock. salt. Yeah, I mean, that's how everything about this has been coming out. So, yeah, so apparently Bridenstine asked for Levero's resignation on May 18th. And we had kind of gone back and forth. Well, no, we didn't go back and forth. You guys were like... Yeah, I bet you he was asked to leave. And I was like, well, maybe not. <laughs> and yeah, no, you guys were right. Somebody asked him to hand in his uh, badge and gun. Yeah. Yeah, to do so. <laughs> so that's what happened, uh, his resignation on May 18th. But I guess the real new news is um, at this moment, the NASA Inspector General, which I don't know if that's one person or it sounds like it might be a group of people, like a, a team, uh, they are looking into the details of exactly what went on between Lavero and Boeing. And it looks like there might have been some what they termed improper guidance on their part. Uh, so like perhaps he had given Boeing some information, which I guess would give them an unfair mm-hmm. advantage. And that seems to be kind of what was going on. What that information was, we still don't know. I have no idea. That part was not specified. Apparently, the Inspector General's staff, so I guess there are several people, they are looking into allegations. He had improperly provided guidance that could have given Boeing unusual insight. So whatever that means, un- uh, unusual insight into aspects of this competition uh, between Boeing and the other companies. And not only that, but had apparently communicated with them during a blackout period. That was a little bit of a unsubstantiated rumor that we talked about before, and it seems like it's a little mm-hmm. more substantiated now. Yeah, because because right off the bat, when people were kind of speculating on this, right, the idea was that Lavero was really into a just having a single provider kind of cover most of what Artemis needs, and mm-hmm. thus he kind of was a, a, a biased towards Boeing in that respect. And so, as for that unusual insight, though, I. Yeah, I wonder what that really hmm. means. Yeah, and apparently there was also possible contact between him and um, a second bidder outside normal contracting channel. So does that mean, because I'm a little bit unclear on what that means, is that like, you know, a second bidder for Boeing, like someone who works for Boeing who might also be able to bid on I behalf of Boeing that company? I think Boeing would be the first bidder and the second right. bidder would be a separate company. A separate company, okay. Yeah. The plot thickens, I guess. I mean, uh, evidently, right, he sounds like he thought he was doing the right thing as far as... Or at least that was that's what I've been hearing, right? That he was, you know, he was in his resignation letter and all that, that or email that he was, he was trying to do the right thing, but he apparently broke some rules, you know, and you mm-hmm. know, didn't follow procedure quite correctly. But he was he was doing it all for Artemis. But I mean, I feel well, like, and it, you know, it doesn't sound like a bad strategy to say, hey, let's push for a single, you know, like sort of a unified architecture. That that sounds like a good idea. Just that's not how you do it, right? And I, I have to imagine, you know. Uh, uh, Somebody who's been in, even though he wasn't in space, uh, or he wasn't in the uh, civilian side of space flight, or at least you know the NASA side for his career. But he, I imagine, he had to kind of know he was he was playing with fire. You know what I mean mm-hmm. when he was doing this. Yep. And so, yep. yeah, I, I think that's pretty cool though. How like you know awesome our listeners and like our Discord is. <laughs> Uh, our support I mean, network. Uh, our support network. Yeah, like that. You know, it, it very quickly kind of like you know we we got a picture of what was happening, uh, while it was still very vague being reported, mm-hmm. or while mm-hmm. yeah, what was being reported was still very vague. The other big news. So we now have a new head of the HGO Mission Directorate, which um, so that stands for Human Exploration Operations, or a new Associate Administrator of Human Exploration and Operations. That sounds more right. I mean, it's hard for me to remember either way. Like I'm I'm just not going to commit to memory these long titles but so <laughs> there's no need so yeah that person is kathy loiters and uh from what i've seen like everybody loves kathy like i've only ever seen people um even before she was selected to lead heo 
like everybody really likes her. So um, her name is likely going to be familiar. Her, it's pronounced Loiters, but it looks like Looters. I think I just was just reading it as Loiters. Actually, I didn't realize it was U-E. I thought that was yeah. No, I believe it's nice. Loiters, like like Reuters. Mm-hmm. Not routers, ah. it's Reuters, right? That, yeah. I I believe this is how I've heard it pronounced uh, in like uh, webcasts and things. Pretty sure it's Kathy Reuters. And when you when you said it, it sounded right as well. So, <laughs> so that's what what I'm gonna <laughs> go with. So you you should be familiar with with uh, Kathy Reuters name, uh, even if the pronunciation doesn't trigger memory. It's spelled L-U-E-D-E-R-S, Luders. So uh, if that helps you remember seeing this uh, in the past, but um, I've always heard really good things about her. Everybody seems to be a fan, a Kathy fan, but her, her name will, will likely be familiar because of her work managing both the commercial crew program and the commercial cargo program. So um, she's really uh, got the experience that one would need to lead HEO. And um, I actually saw, I think it was uh, Eric Berger said, hey, you know what? This really makes sense given that Bridenstine is really pushing to make NASA's access to space uh, commercial in nature, right? Like he, he really sees us going to the moon on commercial partners. Um, and so grabbing somebody who has worked on commercial crew and commercial cargo really makes a lot of sense uh from Bridenstine's or Bridenstine's particular viewpoint right but it it also makes i mean it's it seems very pointed to me uh we just had a deputy administrator ousted because he interacted improperly with a commercial partner and the reason that he acted improperly was he was trying to speed things up. Right. And that's the most difficult part of this job. I would assume is interfacing between NASA, which moves very slow and commercial partners, which try to move very fast, particularly SpaceX moves very fast. Um, and Loiters has proved that she can do that. I think, uh, I think it was Eric Berger in his article in Ars Technica, which will be linked in the show notes. But I think he basically said commercial crew and commercial cargo were the only truly successful programs in Bridenstine or Bridenstine's NASA, right? Bridenstine's administration. It was basically commercial Mm. crew and commercial cargo because W first got delayed and, you know, was attempted to be defunded. What's the, uh, the giant telescope? JWST? JWST, yeah. James Webb was, was delayed and delayed and delayed. But commercial crew and commercial cargo, um, had a few delays, but they absolutely delivered a, a hundred percent. Uh, you know, commercial crew, and maybe you could say it's delivered 50% so far, but, um, like for real, like they, they really have been, uh, very successful as long as you're thinking in terms of everything gets delayed. Mm-hmm. Not so yeah. successful if you think in terms of you promised this year, you better deliver on this year. And, and so she seems like the perfect person to also handle HEO, which is going to have a lot of these same, uh, schedule and philosophy, uh, conflicts, if that's not too dramatic. So that, that makes me really happy. I, I think she's going to do really well. And I think she's going to get us to the moon in an efficient way. All right, let's do the usual three short and sweets. Well, some new ones, obviously, but you know, <laughs> same old ones as we always read. <laughs> the usual number of three. <laughs> 
Short and sweet. The trio. <laughs> well, first up, InSight's mole is fully underground. One of the NASA InSight lander's main instruments, the HPQ probe, has struggled to burrow in the Martian surface for over a year now. <laughs> the mole, as it's also known, became stuck after only reaching a few centimeters depth in March 2019. For the past several months, mission scientists have commanded the lander's robotic arm to guide the mole forward as it hammered, and the probe has now reached a depth of seven centimeters, very completely and flush with the Martian surface. Next will come the free mole test, where it will hammer without the aid of the arm, although with the dusty season approaching, mission scientists are concerned about InSight's ability to power the probe for this operation. Also, uh, you should see uh, our show notes for a Reddit thread where instrument engineer Troy Hudson goes into some great detail and answers questions on the issue. And next, uh, Northrop Grumman received a contract to develop a gateway module. While a year has passed since NASA announced its intention for Northrop Grumman to build Gateway's habitation module, the sole source award has now been granted. The Habitation and Logistics Outpost, or HALO, will be developed using a $187 million contract through a preliminary design phase later this year. If satisfactory, the company will be granted a second contract to build the module itself. It was announced last month that HALO, which will be the size of a small studio apartment, will be launched in 2023 together with Maxar's power and propulsion element to remove the need for in-orbit docking between the two gateway elements. Like that, the size of a small studio apartment. That's a great comparison. <laughs> they kept reporting that, like every news outlet really? that mentioned it kept saying small studio apartments. Well, because, studio. yeah, it's like something that you can relate to, that you can visualize, plus it sounds very, I mean, I guess, right? you know, it just sounds very grounded, you know, it's like... Everybody that's ever lived in a small studio at some point in their lives. Small studio apartments, <laughs> like I know what those are. And then lastly, Raytheon gets a DARPA contract. So Raytheon has received a $37.4 million contract to develop space-based sensors for the Blackjack program, which aims to demonstrate the feasibility of a constellation of small satellites for military communication. The payload to be developed by Raytheon is called OPIR, Overhead Persistent Infrared. It will be integrated into the Blackjack buses and Pit Boss. So Pit Boss is uh, the onboard artificial intelligence processor for autonomous operation on orbit. Uh, and these sensors must be delivered and ready for integration by 2023. So, yeah, I guess there's like a Blackjack Pit Boss theme thing going on. Yeah. And the spacecraft looks cool, too. Or the satellites look cool. They, they, got, they got a very Juno kind of look, like the three uh, kind of arms leading off them. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we got a couple corrections from just one person. That is Ben Hallert. And yes, some really cool clarifications on some things that we were discussing a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Or one correction for Ben, I guess, and one correction for all of us. Sure. <laughs> clarification. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this was much more timely last week, but obviously, uh, we did not do anything last week. Uh, or we didn't, we didn't do any, any space discussions last week. So yeah, first is a correction for me. And this is really good. Uh, I talked about Crew Dragon as being the first vehicle with people that was fueled with the people on board. That's incorrect. Mercury Atlas, in his words, also was fueled with meat bags on board. And so yes, yeah, correct. Uh, I got that one wrong. And, and, it, for the same reason, Mercury was able to, it had a proper launch abort tower. 
Um, so it could do that. Whereas I don't know why Soyuz doesn't. Um, may, I, I guess Soyuz might not have the ability to do a pad abort, but I believe it does. But obviously Shuttle and Gemini couldn't do pad aborts. Okay. And then next, this is, this is really good. I'm just going to read the tweet directly because it's, there's some logic going on here. And uh, I think Ben put it uh, very succinctly and, and directly. He said, uh, regarding DM2, you mentioned, uh, Right, demo mission two for, for Crew Dragon. Read DM2. Uh, you mentioned that they would probably launch even if a booster couldn't be landed because of weather. And I think this was, I think I said this in particular again, but then he continues. If downrange aborts are part of the launch decision, weather that would prevent booster landing is probably outside of abort capable weather as well. Right. So, so we are talking about all the different sites that. Um, that crew dragon can abort to during its launch. And so you can't land at an abort site if the weather is outside of a certain range. And what Ben's saying is if the weather is bad enough that you couldn't do a booster landing out at sea, that weather is probably going to violate uh, what we're assuming are narrower weather constraints for crew dragon, right? It would just makes sense that the landing a capsule, you have tighter constraints than, than the booster would have. So mm. I think, I think that's a really, really, really good point. Maybe you could have localized bad weather, but you know, we, we know that they look at a very broad area because weather moves and who knows how large these landing ellipses actually are for the, for the aborts. So I, I think that that's very solid logic there. And, and then before, before we move on, I just wanted to thank Jim Wagner for giving us a fantastic, uh, Latin phrase, ad astra per justitia. Uh, I think that's great. And thanks to everybody who wrote in about the show last week. There was so much support and we, we really appreciate mm-hmm. it because, you know, it's a little scary, but you know, not, not like to toot our own horn or anything, but like it, it felt really good to have so many people agree with us and, and be willing to write in and support. So thank you. Ad Astra. Let's move on then to this week in spaceflight history. So our clue for two weeks ago was bombs away. And our winners were Chubby and the Greek. And they, they both nailed it. Well, that's good. They, they both they both provided photos. Chubby provided an extra little tidbit that I'll mention later. Like perfect full fullest credit to Chubby and the Greek. So I'm so I'm trying to remember if I even knew what the clue was in, uh, was in reference to, but but I've already forgotten. Um so actually <laughs> so either way I don't know what bombs away means. So yeah, you'll have to uh you'll have to enlighten us. Yeah, so this week in spaceflight history is uh June 15th, 1977. It was the first shuttle SRB drop test from NB-52, also known as Balls 8. So that that's oh, quite a sentence. <laughs> let's, let's dig into it. <clears throat> so uh, first off, solid rockets are, are not our favorite thing on this show, I feel like. I, I think we're much more interested in the more complex, you know, bipropellant uh, combustion kind of, you know, like complicated rocket engines. But we got to stop for a second and admit the shuttle SRB is really an amazing thing. It's, it's a fantastically engineered piece of equipment. Um, it, it really had, uh, a pretty difficult task to accomplish. Um, so the thrust curve, right? We've talked about how, how solid rockets, you know, you light them up and then they run until they're done, but you can tailor the amount of thrust that they produce at you know, any portion of their, uh, of their burn. Um, and it's called the, the thrust curve and the shuttle SRB thrust curve was, was pretty complex. It, 
increased in thrust, then decreased, then increased, and then decreased again, and then did a tail off maneuver so that they could uh, separate the solid rockets without large transient thrust as they really um, got down to the last little dregs of their uh, of the fuel grain. In the show notes will be a PDF uh, that talks about the SRBs, and it's really a fantastic article, and it's got a lot of a, a fantastic paper, and then it's got a lot of really, really good accompanying photos and diagrams that I highly recommend taking a look at. One of those diagrams is the actual thrust curve for shuttle, and it's the planned thrust curve. I actually, when I was researching, I found um, a diagram that actually had the intended thrust curve versus actual thrusts um, experienced during a ground test. And that was really cool because you could actually see the, um, the size of those transient thrusts as they, you know, you had little spikes and dips. But anyway, one of the little facts that came out of that, uh, paper that really grabbed me is, uh, the SRBs are made up of five engine segments, right? They're, segments that get stacked on top of each other to build the overall engine. Well, each of those segments requires 48 propellant mixes. Um, and then as they're building rockets, they're not just building them and throwing them into a garden shed somewhere for somebody to come and pick up later. Um, they actually build matched engines um, that are built from the same materials lot so that they will be, if they have off-spec materials, they will be matched in both of the boosters so that they'll provide an, uh, a matched, you know, if they may, if they, if there's a mistake, it'll at least be matched between the two of them. Right. So a lot of times, I, I don't know about you guys, but I think about the orbiter as being the only part of STS that was designed to be reused. But, you know, these SRBs, uh, were designed, they were designed for reuse and they were reused. Um, you know, it's fairly expensive to, to reuse them, but that's STS, you know, <laughs> but anyway, not only were they designed to be reused, but they were designed to be reused many, many, many times. The structural assemblies, like the actual, the structure of the rocket was designed to be reused 40 times. And then pretty much everything else, the motor case, the electronics and the TVC, the thrust vector control was all designed for 20 reuses. And then on the low end, the parachutes were designed for 10 reuses. But to reuse parachutes 10 times, especially after dropping them in salt water is pretty freaking cool. Um, the design aimed for a 50% cost reduction compared to uh, expendable, uh, an expendable use mode. Uh, so 50% cost reduction over 487 planned missions. Um, that's, that's a pretty drastic cost reduction. I should have looked up what their actual cost reduction was, but I, I didn't. And I refuse to apologize until next week when somebody <laughs> points it out. And it's a really interesting number that I should have included. Anyway, so the, the parachutes, I, I want to talk more about the parachutes because obviously they are a major part of reusing this, this, uh, this rocket. Each of the SRBs had five parachutes. There were the pilot and the drogue chutes. Those were housed in the nose cap, which is the top half of the nose cone. That nose cap was just totally jettisoned and thrown away. And the pilot and the drogue chutes were not recovered. Um, but obviously you jettison the nose cap, the pilot comes flying out, and that pulls the drogue chute out. Um, and then below that, 
in the bottom half of the nose cone, which is called the frustrum, um, was the three main parachutes. Um, and that frustrum sits on top of the forward skirt, which is a cylindrical uh, section that it sits on top of uh, the top uh, solid rocket segment. So all of all five of these parachutes were triggered by a bunch of different equipment, including uh, a couple of solid state switches, um, two time delay devices, and an altitude switch. And this altimeter altitude switch thing, uh, or this this mechanism was actually pretty cool because it could tri- it triggered on multiple altitudes. Two different altitudes would trigger different things. Um, and instead of having two altimeters, they just crammed it all into one uh, one device. So the nose cap was jettisoned at 16,000 feet to deploy the pilot and the drogue chute. Uh, the drogue uh, had two reefing stages that it would go through. Once they got down to 6,600 feet, they would deploy the mains. Um, and those, there are three mains, and they each went through three different reefing stages. So that's five chutes and uh, six different drag amounts mm-hmm. of drag right a tiny amount of drag from the pilot two different amounts of drag from the reefing stages and then three three drag stages uh as you deploy the mains it just that's a lot of reefing <laughs> yeah it's something about that just feels good to me and then uh water impact uh occurred at 85 feet per second wow i just checked that's shy of uh, 60 miles an hour thank you and and it's uh 26 meters per second yeah so that's uh it's pretty fast those boosters look heavy do you know about what weight they are once they're all yeah i do and i will talk about it in a second because it's actually really (laughs) important how heavy they are so uh part of booster certification is obviously testing the the booster recovery sequence. In 1973, they began collecting some data by doing air tests or airdrops of a Titan III motor case, like a, a motor case and nozzle, just to prove that they could survive impact. They started chucking them out of airplanes. Um, and then um, the, the first airdrop of a shuttle SRB happened in 1977. And before they got to that point, Engineering studies following the Titan III airdrops showed that you actually needed more structural, more strength uh, to survive landing than you do to survive ascent. And um, so they talked about it in terms of a dry weight delta. So that's basically the reverse of a fuel fraction, right? On the way up, we talk about fuel fraction because it is the major determinant of how much delta V a rocket stage can provide. And uh, that's the the fraction of the vehicle that is fuel versus the fraction of the vehicle that is anything other than fuel. Uh, that structure, that's payload, that's the rocket engines themselves. So um, these studies showed that a 10% increase in dry weight delta was required. That's the amount of dry weight compared to the fuel, right? It's kind of the backwards way of looking at that. So they needed to, you could build a minimal SRB, um, but if you wanted to be able to land it, you'd have to increase that delta by 10%. Um, and so that was built into the SRBs. They they actually reduced the SRB performance in order to be able to uh, to recover them. 
So once they had designed the SRB, um, they did six airdrops um, to test their parachutes. When I initially was looking through this, I thought they were dropping entire SRBs, but that's actually absolutely implausible. That that can't happen. But they did six airdrops um, between uh, June of 1977 and September of 1978. And this week in spaceflight history is the first of those airdrops. So now that sentence kind of has some context and I hope can stick. So let me, let me reread that sentence. The first shuttle SRB drop test from NB 52 known as balls eight. So let's talk about NB 52. So this is a, a B 52 um, in the N configuration. The other popular B 52 configuration, I believe was eight, uh, the H configuration. Uh, NASA purchased two. Uh, B-52s. One was called Balls 8, and the other one was called, uh, I think, the High and Mighty. It was, uh, well, so Balls 8 is named after its tail number 008, um, Balls 8. Um, the other one you would expect to be called Balls 3, 003. Oh, 005, actually. Uh, but they didn't call it Balls 5, they called it the High and Mighty. <laughs> Don't ask. <laughs> Um, but Balls 8 uh, was actually the 10th B-52 off the line total, and it was initially modified for X-15 flights, and it did a huge number of X-15 flights. And then uh, Balls 8 was actually retired after every other B-52 had been retired. Quite a workhorse, although, to be fair, it had the fewest number of airframe hours actually logged on the aircraft, so it was in use for a long time, but not flown very often. So, David, the answer to your question is the rocket casing, the dry weight, just the casing of the shuttle SRB is 186,000 pounds. Wow. That's very, very heavy. So how do you airdrop a rocket casing that weighs 186,000 pounds? Well, the answer is you don't. Yeah, you don't. Uh, Balls 8 had a maximum capacity of 50,000 pounds for under-the-wing airdrop cargo. And so I, I don't completely understand how they pulled this off, but basically they used fractional objective tests. Um, so they simulated each stage of the parachute deployment in separate drop tests uh, to validate the entire sequence with smaller loads. So it, it seems reasonable enough that if you want to simulate uh, one of the main parachutes, since you normally have three parachutes on a mass of, let's call it N, you have three parachutes on a mass of N, so you can practically triple the, the mass of your test mass by using only one parachute. So then you get a three N or, you know, one third N, mm -hmm. an N of one be becomes the equivalent of three N, right? If that makes sense. So that, that seems pretty reasonable, but still a third of the full mass was still above the mass that this airplane could drop. And then uh, to make things worse, the drogue shoots were actually validated to a higher load than the mains were. Um, and the, there's only one drogue, so it's not like you can just use fewer drogue parachutes to act as if you have a, a larger mass that you're testing them under. Um, so I, I, I don't understand how they, how they did this. I, I think they basically had to accept lower loads 
but some I, I, I don't I <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know how they did it, but they were oh. able to test the equivalent of full flight loads is what I understand. So there you go. That's this week in space flight history. And then, like I said, Chubby gave me an extra little tidbit that I really like. This happened on June 15th, and that was the day before uh, Werner von Braun died. And that's that's kind of a weird little coincidence. Um <laughs> That it, that it was so close. But I guess this is also a fairly yeah. minor event. So if you pick any, the day that anybody died, you know, there's probably yeah. something, if you consider minor events that can happen a, the day before, the day after, maybe the week before, the week after, I bet you pretty much everybody, you could find something that's reasonably significant that happened near the day of their death. But there you go. And then here's another cool little tidbit that I had no idea. Colin in the chat mm. um, points out that the SRBs, right? SRB, solid rocket booster. <laughs> solid rocket fuel, but actually they had liquid rocket fuel on board because they had APUs, auxiliary power units. They had APUs powered by hydrazine fuel cells. <laughs> so, so they actually had hydrazine, a liquid rocket fuel on board <laughs> a solid rocket booster. <laughs> That's very cool. Hydrazine APUs. Very cool. Thank you, Colin. I, I appreciate that little tidbit. That's really cool. I did not know that. All right, so um, what is our clue for next week? So I am known for getting my dates wrong. All three of us worked to get this one right, (laughs) and we still screwed it up and fixed it. So so, (laughs) I believe this is correct, but if it's not uh, mea culpa, I apologize. Next week in 1997, the clue is full of menace like a shark. So yes, of course, I do know what the event is, but I have to admit, I don't know what the clue is in reference yeah. to exactly yeah. regarding that event. I'm not sure. Same so that's, this is a tough one. Full of menace like a shark in 1997. <laughs> so if you think you know what that is about, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. Moving on then to the upcoming spaceflight events. We got a couple launches and a spacewalk as well. So first up on June 17th, we've got a Long March 2D that will take that will be uh, taking uh, Gaufen uh, 9.03 to orbit. This is a, uh, you know, a series of uh, civilian Earth observation satellites uh, coming from China. And uh, the launch is, again, uh, June 17th at 0718 UTC with a window from 0718 to 0740. Cool. And then next up on June 19th uh, is a Vega launch with uh, the SSMS POC, which is the Proof of Concept for Small Spacecraft Mission Service. This is basically a modular carbon fiber dispenser for a whole bunch of small sats at one time. So it sounds like that uh, this is just, you know, something that's being developed by uh, the European Space Agency so that they can use this fairly large launch vehicle to distribute a bunch of fairly small satellites since that seems to be the trend these days. So yeah, that's launching from Kourou and that is launching from Launch Area 1 on June 19th at 0151 in 10 seconds UTC. And it looks like that's an instantaneous launch window apparently. And then the day after the next show comes out, so Wednesday, will be a preview briefing for um, the next spacewalk that's happening. So that's spacewalk, uh, U.S. Spacewalk 65, and uh, that's going to be Cassidy and Benkin, which is really cool because, like, we just sent Benkin up there on a demo mission and now we're putting him to work. Like, we, I mean, yeah. we knew that this was, that this was in the plan, but like, it, it's something about it just seems really cool. I can't, guys, I can't wait to see photos of crew dragon from the exterior 
it's going to be really cool. Um, the, yeah. the spacewalk footage always gives you such a great sense of scale that you just don't get from stationary cameras. So the spacewalk will be happening Friday. We will give you an update on that in our next show to remind you to watch it. But right now I wanted to give you a reminder of the preview briefing. So that's happening um, June 24th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. It'll be airing on NASA TV. And these preview briefings are so good, even for simple things like this, which is a, a battery replacement. Boy, I'm saying that without those words being in front of me. This is just me remembering what I've read this week. So hopefully I get that right. But uh, a battery replacement, a uh, fairly routine EVA at this point, we've done a bunch of these. These preview briefings are always so good. They have animations and photos and demonstrations, and it's it's just fantastic. So again, that's 2 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday the 24th. And with that, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, so uh, with that, we will uh, deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links for Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.